Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have war-related stories and objects that have been passed down to us from our parents, grandparents, and other family members. And as we approach 85 years since the start of the Second World War, it's more important than ever to preserve this history before it slips from living memory. I'm your host, James Patton Rogers. This is Warfare. And for this episode, I've invited Dr. Joseph Quinn onto the podcast. Joe is the project coordinator for outreach, networking, and media for the Their Finest Hour project run at the University of Oxford. With generous funding from the National Lottery Heritage Fund, Their Finest Hour aims to empower local communities to digitally preserve their stories and objects before they're lost to history. And in this episode, we get to hear some of the truly fascinating forgotten histories they've already documented. I loved recording this episode, and I hope you, like me, are inspired to get involved in the project by hosting your own Their Finest Hour event, or by contributing your family histories to their amazing online archive. Enjoy. Hi, Joseph. Welcome to Warfare. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing yourself, James? Yeah, good, thanks. And it's great to have you on the podcast. It seems strange to think that the Second World War is very, very quickly fading from living memory. And it's one of the greatest privileges of doing this podcast is we've been able to really showcase the voice of those who fought in and survived the Second World War, whether that be survivors of the Holocaust, like Agnes Grunwald-Svier, or whether it's survivors of Hiroshima with uh, Kiko Ogura. Getting those voices of war over to an audience is incredibly important, and documenting them through an oral history is so important so that these histories really don't fade. And we've had veterans on this podcast as well. It was just a few weeks ago that we had Chuck Richardson talking about being in B-17s over Europe, or we had John Henry Meller talking about his time in, in Lancasters and some of the most daring missions of the Second World War. And this is exactly what you're working on, aren't you, Joe? You've got this new project that's been funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, and it's all about trying to gather up as many stories as possible as we move towards this fading from living memory. So tell us, how did this project get started? Well, the project really got started on the back of the success of precursor projects, such as Lest We Forget. Many people, many of your listeners would be familiar with the Lest we forget project, which was also funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Now, the whole point of these particular projects is to organize what we call Digital Collection Day events, and it's based on a model known as the Oxford Community Collections Model. And you organize these events normally 
in community centres, parish halls, libraries, or it can be in universities, or it can be in museums, institutions like that. It can be large or small institutions of major note or minor regional significance. It doesn't really matter. You can actually host this event anywhere. It's been hosted in primary schools as well. And unless we forget, they gathered First World War heritage. Now, obviously, you refer to oral histories and this fading wartime generation and how it's important to have oral history projects to gather their testimony. Well, this project is rather different. It does have an oral history component, but it's not about necessarily gathering the eyewitness testimony of those who are still alive of the wartime generation. It's actually about gathering the stories from their descendants. That's the purpose. And it's about observing the way in which that knowledge and those memories have been transferred from the wartime generation down to their children and grandchildren and to other members of their family as well. And that is actually the key purpose of the project, to gather those stories as they've been handed down to the descendants of the wartime generation. And in the case of the First World War centenary, where we ran lest we forget, that was really all you had to go with because there were no survivors from the First World War. That generation had disappeared. And also what was noticed as well is that the First World War had just slipped beyond living memory. The sun had already set and basically it was way beyond the horizon. So all that was really left to go on were the stories, were the memories, and also the physical items of heritage. That was all that these people had to connect them with their forebears who had served or had labored in some way during the First World War. So the reason we're running this particular project for the Second World War, even though there are lots of eyewitnesses left, is we want to gather the memories while they're still fresh before the living memory has basically that sun has set, the living memory has faded from our view. And we want to observe the way in which the war has been mythologized and the way in which people use their connection to the Second World War through their family stories to in some way identify with the key themes of the Second World War. And that is a key purpose of the project. It's very family oriented, it's very community oriented, and that is really the entire purpose of it. That's how we want it. And that is basically the unique selling point of the project. I love this idea, especially in a post-COVID world where so many of us have been separated for so long, to be able to gather together in a, a village hall or a local school and to be able to share these stories. Like you say, not only from veterans or those who lived through the Second World War or through the Blitz, but also from the families of those and the stories that they've been told and that have been handed down and the artefacts that have been handed down. But that also can be a little bit scary, Joe, because I remember I was holding a similar kind of event to mark the 75th anniversary of the cluster bombing of Grimsby during the Second World War. It's the first ever cluster bombing of civilians. The cluster bomb was invented by the Nazis. 3,000 of them were dropped on Grimsby. And I turned up there and we had probably 100 people in the room between the ages of 9 and 99. And we had so many stories being handed across. It was less about me giving a talk and more about me listening and learning is what it turned into. But at the same time, there were a, a number of people who had lived through the war who were turning up with these plastic bags and saying, oh, I've got something to show you. I've got a bit of the cluster bomb. 
Now, these are anti-disturbance cluster bombs. And the moment you touch them, they can explode. But over the years, they could seize up. So any sort of, of jolting could perhaps detonate them. So I went through this process of just being absolutely terrified of looking in every bag. And luckily, they were just the wings of this cluster bomb. And there was no actual bomblet itself. But back a few years earlier, at the local museum in Immingham, the uh, receptionist there had taken in a donation from one of the local citizens and they'd given them one of these bomblets and the whole place had to be evacuated and bomb disposal had to come in and apparently they'd come across at least 10 or 20 of these bomblets a year still in the UK. It's one of the biggest things that EOD deal with, that bomb disposal deal with. Have you had have you had any worries like that or has it been pretty clear and plain sailing for you so far? We have had no incidents um, that exciting to report. Um, we haven't had anybody bring in anything that we could classify as live ordnance. We haven't really had any weapons or, or anything like that brought to our collection days. Certainly, there haven't been any bomb casings or fragments or whatnot. We have had pieces of shrapnel. We have had things that were impacted by you know high-velocity rounds and whatnot brought that have been accessioned into our online archive. No, we haven't had anything of that note, but I would say that one thing we do have, which was a sort of accession from distance through our online archive, through the direct submissions form, was submitted by the grandson of Oswaldo Sargiotto, who is a living Second World War veteran. He's 103 years old. He served in the first Brazilian expeditionary division. And uh, even though Brazilian veterans or non-UK, non-Commonwealth personnel are not, uh, and stories are not really our remit, we still gather stories from all over the world. And we have people submitting stories from all over the world. And we interviewed Oswaldo Sargiotto and they submitted his story as well as items from his personal collection to our online archive. And one of these items was a mortar bomb. So Oswaldo was part of a mortar squad in the 1st Brazilian Expeditionary Division under the command of General Marachenas. And in he fought in the Battle of Monte Castello and he served in a mortar unit. So he fired off, he must have fired thousands of these rounds. But he had one mortar bomb left from his time in service and it was sitting on the table in front of me during my Zoom interview with Oswaldo and his grandson, Thiago. And um, I sort of cracked a joke. I said, is that thing still alive? And Thiago picked up the round and he just slammed it down by, by the detonating end. And he said, no, I think that's... So the thing was, it wouldn't have affected me, but somewhere on the other side of the South Atlantic, something very bad could have happened to a 103-year-old gentleman who had survived so much only to have a possible live round go off. But it did provoke the whole sort of discussion of what would we do if live ammunition came to our event. And we have actually crafted a policy around that. But our main thing is that we tell people not to bring in undeactivated weapons or not, not to bring anything that is considered to be live ordnance from the wartime period because it could be fragile, because it could easily be set off or detonated. And uh, we do have that particular approach. But as regards to cluster bomb pieces in Grimsby, we would actually love to take that into our online archive as well. That sounds like quite fascinating. Grimsby, that would be a great place to have an event. 
Yeah, there you go. And I mean, the key thing as well, I think, when it comes to the history of wartime Britain, of the wartime United Kingdom, is that every single town, even every single village has its own history and its own myths of the Second World War that have been handed down through the generations. And it's amazing that you get to document these. So you've got Brazilian veterans here. How far does your collection spread? I mean, do you have stories from all around the world? Is is that how it includes inclusive your collection is? Our collection is extremely inclusive. I mean, we you know, we have a primarily UK and Commonwealth focus in our project. In terms of the events that we are running, we can only run events in the UK. Really, the UK is our remit, so our funding does not permit us to host events outside the UK. But we do have a direct submissions portal, and people from anywhere in the world, from the comfort of their own home, can upload their own family's war story to our online archive and we will accept it and we will accept it. We do curation on the archive, of course, and, you know, we do have certain policies around there might be something, details that are sensitive, possibly offensive, that we may not be able to release when the archive goes live. But 99, I think, 0.5% of the archive as it is being submitted to us is going to be shared with the general public in a year's time. We will take stories from any quarter. And actually what we really want to do in the lead up to November the 11th, we're planning a campaign known as Big Remembrance Weekend or World War II Big Remembrance Weekend. That's what we're provisionally titling it. And we would like to encourage anybody around the UK to simultaneously, in coordination with their fellow volunteers in other parts of the UK, November the 11th and November the 12th, that's Armistice Day and Remembrance Sunday events, Collection Day events, as part of their remembrance activities during that particular weekend. And we would like to invite people to host Collection Day events in their schools, in their parish halls, in their British Legion clubs, in local places of worship, anywhere where remembrance activities are likely to happen as part of your remembrance activity, maybe host at their finest hour, World War II Collection Day, to remember those who fought and served in the Second World War and perhaps also gave their lives as well. And then after we close off events in the UK, because we will eventually have to close that phase of our project off, we will continue to accept stories through our online archive. And we will actively promote this archive, not just in the UK, but on multiple continents, in North America, in Africa, in India, in Asia, anywhere where there is interest, anywhere where the Commonwealth or the former British Imperial Territories were, we will publicize this archive widely and we will seek to take stories from anybody who is willing to give them. And we have a particular focus in this country on people from an Afro-Caribbean background and also South Asian backgrounds as well because of the extraordinary contribution that ethnic minority communities in this country made to the war effort. You may have noticed I'm Irish. We have we also take stories from Ireland as well, of course, Northern Ireland, but as well as the Republic, remembering people who volunteered to serve in the British forces, as well as those who served in the forces of neutral Ireland. And we're particularly also interested in the contributions of people who came to the UK as volunteer soldiers or exiled soldiers from the continent of Europe. We're interested in the stories of refugees. We're interested in the stories of our enemies. You know, a lot of enemy POWs came to this country. About 1.5 million Italian and German POWs were interned in this country. 
And we are getting a lot of stories, both of enemy POWs as well as our own British POWs and Commonwealth POWs that were interned overseas in Germany, Italy and the Far East. And we're getting those stories as well. So a lot of prisoner of war stories coming in, but keep them coming. They're amazing stories. And also the Americans as well. Our American allies came here in their millions and they were stationed, many of them were stationed in Britain before being deployed elsewhere. And we are looking for stories of Americans serving in the Second World War. But in particular, we are particularly interested in Americans who were stationed on UK soil prior to the deployment elsewhere or perhaps served in the 8th Air Force. We want to tell the entire story of the war. Lastly, one of the things I would say about our archive is it's very much reflecting a fact about Britain's experience of the Second World War. Earlier in a previous discussion, I concluded with another podcast host, we concluded that Britain's experience of the Second World War had been something along the lines of a home front war, as opposed to the First World War, where there was a deployment in Europe and so on, there was the Western Front. That wasn't the case for much of the Second World War. For much of the Second World War, Britain was the front line. And you had the armed forces here alongside the civilian population, and everybody pitched in. So the war was really waged for a long time on the home front. And the archive is really reflecting that at the present time. We were getting a lot of stories from the home front, and we want more stories to come. And lastly, no story we will be excluded from our purview. You may not think your story is particularly exciting. You might think it's mundane or fairly standard. We don't care. Whatever your story is, send it in to us. If you would like to share it, it doesn't matter if you think it's boring. We are as interested in the ordinary and mundane as we are in what you might consider to be extraordinary. That to us is extraordinary, and we want all war stories, regardless of whether they're extraordinary, exciting or not. I think my granddad might disagree with you, Joe, about it being a completely home front war, because uh, I tell you what, history may call them D-Day Dodgers, but my granddad was over in North Africa and a sergeant in the Coldstream Guards. We're talking Tobruk, El Alamein, and then you get carted over as part of Operation Husky into Sicily through to Italy, fighting your way through. And my word, he had a hard time of it. He signed up with his, his best friend from the age of seven, his next door neighbor, Harry Frodham. And I've been lucky enough to go out to Italy and to visit Harry's grave over in the Florence Wargrave Cemetery. And they came up to this wall. And uh, my granddad said to his whole detachment, let's just hold up. I'm going to take us through this. And uh, Harry turns to my granddad, Ted, and goes, oh, don't worry, Ted, I got this one. Jumps over the wall with a couple of his men, starts walking about 20 feet into the field and just, just blows up. It's an entire minefield. And I think that was around... Late 43, early 1944. I'll have to check his war records. But it's at that point that his mind goes. He's been serving non-stop by this point. He joins up at 18. They even actually, they said on his medical papers, as he was put under psychological watch for a few months, they said that his brother had died in combat because his commanding officers knew exactly just how much their friendship and their bond meant to each other, that he would just wouldn't be able to serve again in that active capacity. But he gave so much for that war. So we want to be inclusive to everyone here that served either on that home front element or to anyone who served more broader a field. And actually, with that in mind, Joe, are you also looking for Australian and New Zealanders as well and the stories from the other side of the world? We've got listeners all around the world. Of course, absolutely. In fact, actually, that's precisely the point. We want stories also. I mean, of course, we're interested in stories 
of people who served in North Africa initially, like your grandfather. We also have stories coming in, a lot of stories coming in about the Burma campaign, a lot of family stories about people serving with Bill Slim's 14th Army in northern India and then into Burma. So we're getting a lot of that coming in as well. And of course, we want more of that. We need actually more from North Africa. But if you're talking about the Australian and New Zealand and Canadian experience, the Commonwealth experience of the Second World War and the South African experience, yes, we want those stories as well. We want as many stories. And they obviously, they can come to us through events for the reasons that I've explained, but they can come in through our direct submissions portal which links to our online archives. So you go to theirfinesthour.org, you can access it from anywhere in the world, and you will be able, in front of you on the homepage, you will see preserve their memories, and directly underneath that there's a button, and it says share your story. You click that and you're directly through to our direct submissions portal, which is facilitated through a facility called Omica. And you just it's a very simple questionnaire. If you've got all the materials there, you could actually fill it out in less than 10 minutes and then you're done. But take your time, of course. And we will take any story, any story pertaining to the Second World War or to the years immediately before it or afterwards, we will take it. And we're as interested in Australian soldiers who fought in the Kokoda Track or New Zealanders who fought in the island of Crete or Canadians who served in the Aleutian Islands as we are in, you know, UK personnel who served in various theatres of war or in home service. We will take all stories from the Commonwealth and further abroad. And just bear in mind, this, this archive, this enti- entire project is there not just to facilitate primarily the stories of the UK's experience in the Second World War. It's there to facilitate the Commonwealth's experience of the Second World War, and to a certain extent, the empire as well, such as it existed. Well, I'll be sure to send that link directly to my mum, who's going to be over the moon to be able to share these stories. And not just about my grandfather either, but also about my grandmother, who served in in the auxiliaries. She was over in Italy, She was there. That's where she met my grandfather. I'm not entirely sure what she was doing there. There's some that say she was trained as a mechanic. We're not so sure. So we're looking into her war records now. But we need to make sure we get it from both sides of the family, including those who worked in the factories during the Second World War, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a common problem. You're mentioning your grandmother who served probably in the ATS overseas. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, this is a common problem that we're having. So people will remember to include the grandfather who, you know, won the Distinguished Conduct Medal, you know, single-handedly taking out a machine gun post with a brain gun, you know, fired from the hip. But they'll forget to include the grandmother, his wife, who he met, you know, who might have served as a nurse at a casualty clearance station somewhere in Italy, and that might have been where they met. They include the story of one particular member of the family, but they don't include the story of the wife, or they don't include the story of her sister who might have worked in number 13 Ordnance Factory, or they don't include, that was in Newport, by the way, um, they mightn't include the story of uh, their, you know, his father who had served in the First World War and was serving in the Devon Home Guard. They don't include these other stories. There's all sorts of other stories very often within families, and people tend to select one. And they could actually submit them all. And you can actually make, if you want, you can make multiple submissions to our archive. There's actually no, just just don't flood our archive with submissions, but you can make multiple submissions. You can make a, a single submission for every single member of your family who rendered some form of service during the Second World War. And you know what? Aren't they worth it? 
Oh, they are so worth it. And even while you're speaking, I can think of more memories that have been handed down to me by my grandparents. And sadly, they've all passed away now, but I was lucky enough to have that connection. And by my mum as well. I think she was just telling me the other week that her mum signed up with her sister's ID because she was too young to join the ATS. So there's so many stories out. I'm so glad you're doing this. And I know that you held an event in Belfast. What sort of histories did you get there? Oh, well, okay. You need to listen to this particular interview. Now, this is an interview with Paul Robinson, and this is just amazing stuff. I mean, it was jaw-dropping, and it was incredibly emotional and moving. And uh, just to preface it, this is the story of Bert Robinson, Sergeant Bert Robinson. And this was told by Paul Robinson, who came to our, he was the first person to arrive at the event at the Linen Hall Library in Belfast, which was held on the 17th of June. And Paul Robinson was a Northern Irish Catholic, not a member of the unionist community. The nuance there is you would expect people from a unionist or loyalist background to come forward very proudly with these stories, whereas the nationalist community not so much because that political divide is still there and it affects the cultural memory of war service. People did serve from the nationalist Catholic community, but they're less forthcoming about it because of everything that happened after the Second World War until the present time. But Paul was the first person at our event, but his story was interesting. You see, his father was a British soldier, not from Northern Ireland, but from Wales. And his father, a Welsh soldier stationed in Northern Ireland in 1940, met his mother, Maureen, who was from a Northern Irish Catholic family background that actually turned out to be very Republican at a later point. And Bert Robinson married Paul's mother and then was deployed back to the mainland UK and then fought in Normandy. And you will hear in Paul's interview, if you listen to this clip, just sort of the reason why his father was so silent for so long about his war service. And it also, to a certain extent, explains the reason why Bert Robinson chose to return to Northern Ireland after the war rather than go back home to his native Wales. My father subsequently took part in the Normandy campaign. Now, they weren't first wave D-Day. They were a few days later. Mm -hmm. He rarely spoke about it, but the one thing we were always aware of was my father was Sergeant Bert Robinson, DCM, Distinguished Conduct Medal. He kept the DCM, it rattled around drawers in the house, didn't keep any of the other medals. Um, he said there were being their medals and he didn't see any real value in them. But he kept the DCM. When we asked him what he got it for, you got a series of very tall tales. He got a letter from, I think it was the British Legion in South Wales, saying that they were re-consecrating the war memorial. And would he come and be at, at the uh, ceremony? And, I mean, he was picked because he was the highest decorated soldier from the area. He was a local. He was very well known, even all those years after the, after the war. And he refused. Well, he very politely refused. But I saw the letter and it was obviously an excuse. He could have gone. And I asked him, why? Why won't you go? I can understand why you played it down when we were younger and we were living in an area where there was a lot of IRA activity and you didn't want to draw attention to who we were. But, you know, what's the harm? And he said, 
Well, before we were posted to Northern Ireland, we were in the local miners club, which is where you went for a cheap drink. Said, and I was a sergeant from the village, and the parents were there. Now, Paul, they must have been in their 40s or maybe 50s, but they looked very old. Says it was a hard life. And they came up to him and buying him drinks, and they said, Bert, you'll bring them home. And he said, Paul, I didn't bring them back. And he alluded to the action which resulted in getting the DCM. And he said, it was a hill outside Con. We were ordered to take the hill and then to hold it. And we held it. And during that night, he said, I watched all my friends die. You, they all died that night? Yes. Joe, that is incredible. To hear Bert's story, of course, about the Distinguished Conduct Medal, but also those legacies of the Second World War. I've never thought about the veterans of the Second World War and how that relates into the Troubles. To hear it from his son as well, it's almost seeing it through a whole different lens and consolidating that history for us to be able to understand and to comprehend with some quite useful hindsight. Step back in time with me, Tristan Hughes, on the Ancients from History hit as we unearth Pompeii's buried secrets in a special mini-series. You'll discover what life was like in this town before the eruption of Vesuvius, the bustling streets, the roar of the gladiators, and the hidden lives of sex workers. Lost for over 1,500 years and then uncovered, Pompeii's saga continues. With the help of leading experts, We'll bust myths and reveal startling new research. So get ready for a dramatic journey through the echoes of the past. Experience Pompeii like never before on the Ancients from History hit. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Do you have any clips, though, from those who did serve from veterans or eyewitnesses of the Second World War? Yes, I have two that I would like to share with you today. Now, the first is Christine Charlwood, who was a teenager during the Second World War. Christine is a religious sister based in West London, here where I am. And Christine told me in passing, she's a parishioner in my local area, she told me in passing about the fact that she had been evacuated from Singapore just before it fell to the Japanese. And in this clip you're about to hear, she will tell you exactly what happened when they found out that uh, Singapore was about to fall and that they needed to get out, her family needed to get out. And really what ended up happening was it was just herself and her mother that left. Her sister got out via a different route and continued to serve as a medical nurse overseas with the Australian Nursing Service. 
but her her father and her brother-in-law were taken prisoner. They were captured by the Japanese. Her father was in, interned in Changi prison, and her brother-in-law, basically her sister's husband, was a prisoner of the Japanese, and he worked on the Thai-Burma Railroad and suffered very greatly but survived. Christine, in this clip, talks about what it was like the moment she basically departed Singapore, and it's all in a flash, and it's absolutely incredible. It's She's on the passenger ship with the bombs falling all around them. It's absolutely mind-blowing stuff. Our, our neighbour was a senior officer in the Navy. This neighbour, whose name I've forgotten, came in. He called my father out of the room, and he said, I shouldn't be telling you this is top secret, but tonight we are blowing up the naval base so the Japanese can't use it. Get your women out. So he, he called us out, my mother and myself, he said, I'm taking you down to the docks because you've got to go. You may pack a suitcase. My sister, who's 19 years old and engaged to this young man, said, I'm not going because I am a nurse. She was a volunteer at some hospital or other, so she was correct. But she was also motivated by not wanting to leave Eric. So my father said, you've got to suit yourself. He didn't, he didn't try and persuade her. So I remember my mother and myself going down to the docks and there were two merchant ships. And I think, I think the one we were on was called the Empress of Japan. And it was seething with women and children, but we were shoveled into these merchant ships. And my mother and I found ourselves in a cabin two lots of two bunks. And we were in with a woman called Ruth Barrow, who was an employee of my father's firm, Upley. And she had two little boys, and I suppose they were about four and six, something like that. And she said, my God, I can't find the baby. He must be on deck. So my mother rushed up. There were bombs falling and found a baby and brought it down. She said, yes, that's right. I mean, how she got separated from this baby, I don't know. So there we were in this tiny cabin, my mother and myself, Ruth and her three children. And I don't remember saying goodbye to my father because it was such a rush. We had to sleep in our clothes all the time and there was food. I don't know how many we were on board, I simply don't remember. But off we sailed. Imagine. Imagine. That is extraordinary. I've never heard such detail about that evacuation. It's an incredible eyewitness testimony, but also harrowing and heart-wrenching all at the same time. Are you going to be able to make all of these stories available for us online so we can hear the endless amounts of testimonies you've got? We will find a way to do it. We do have a podcast series, uh, Their Finest Hour ah, Project. There we run, go. Yes, we run a podcast, just Their Finest Hour, and you can find it on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. But eventually we're going to be releasing some of these oral history testimonies through our podcast. Christine, I've actually encouraged Christine to consider writing a novel based on her experiences. It's, she's just such a wonderful way of describing what it was like. And it's actually a haunting description. I think you'll agree. 
Well, you have to leave us with a clip from the home front. Bring this home back to the UK, because I know that you have a clip from Marion Bloom, who served as a volunteer firewoman with the Auxiliary Fire Service in London during the Blitz. Yes, and what we did with Marion, just to say, because it's very important to make out that this is not an oral history project. This is a collection day process. So oral history is not the core focus of our project. It's a part of it, but it's not the core focus. What I did was I visited Marion's home in Harrow, North London, very recently. And I did this because Marion doesn't really travel around as much as she used to anymore. There are a lot of people like this who would like to share the stories who are not terribly mobile and who might want a bit of assistance with it. So we encourage our volunteers and anybody who can, you know, make arrangements to visit people's homes to facilitate, you know, a safe collection day process within the confines of somebody's home with the consent of the person contributing as well as other members of their family and that it's all done, that it's something that's above board by the family and all the consent and permissions are obtained. And what I did was in the presence of Marion's son, I took Marion's testimony. I recorded her testimony and I accessioned her personal items into our online archive. I took digital photos as well, and I took down the story that she was giving me and I filled in the online submission form and submitted it to our archive. And actually she clicked the terms and conditions and pressed send herself. So basically that was her way of consenting to the entire process. And it's very important to obtain that consent. We can't accept a story without people's consent. So consenting and having the rights to submit a story is very important. And Marion's story is really wonderful, a wonderful story, very moving about her time during the war. She worked for a free French newspaper and was a volunteer firewoman at the same time. And she was stationed in Ealing, where her family home was. And Marion was out on the night of the major blitz on London in December 1940, when they tried to take out St. Paul's. And she was stationed in Ealing Fire Station in the control centre there, sending out all the fire engines to the various locations. She calls them appliances. There's all sorts of jargon and specific terminology that they use in the fire service for this equipment. And these fire engines were known as appliances. And she was dispatching units left, right and centre to deal with the various emergencies and conflagrations that were going on all over the city. Meanwhile, her future husband, Emil, who she had never even met, was also out on the same night, the same blitz. He was in the army at the time, but he got rolled into basically firefighting duties while in London on that particular night. And he himself was kicking off incendiary devices with his boots off rooftops of important buildings around central London, including Whitehall, to prevent them from going on fire. And so he was out doing his own firefighting duty on the same night as his future wife. And they didn't even realize that until many, many years later into their marriage when they actually shared this with each other. But they'd actually been out firefighting on the very same night, long before they met. So you were on duty that night. Mm. They had to rescue St. Paul's on Churchill's orders. Could you describe what happened that night? Well, it was busy. Mm. <laughs> Exciting. Okay. But, uh, and that's what we were doing, yeah. moving the appliances around, making sure that there were always appliances okay. available for the next, yeah. you know, major catastrophe. That was important. Yes, but then I further yeah. discovered that Emil, my husband, had been back from Nigeria and was stationed in London, and he was very much involved in... Uh, 
dealing with fire bombs and things like that. I think he told me how they used to kick them off the roof and, uh, you know, the big buildings and that sort of thing. Well, Joe, that is incredible as well. I could keep talking to you about this all day, but alas, we can't. But you do have, like you say, your own podcast. So I encourage our listeners to go out there and to search for it wherever they get their podcasts. And tell us, Joe, what have you got coming up this year that we can all attend? Yes, our next event will be held at the Royal Signals Museum at Blandford Camp, Dorset. That's on 19th of August. And this will be our first event to be held at an MOD facility. And we're very excited about that. We also have 14 events in the calendar for next month. The month of September alone, we have 14 events. So it's going to be really chock-a-block. And these events are happening all over the UK. For example, on the 7th of September, we have an event at Richmond Library, West London, which is only down the road from where I am now. On Saturday, the 19th of September, we have two events happening simultaneously, one at Leicester Central Library and another held at Coventry Cathedral. And the one at Coventry will be held outdoors in the historic ruins of the nave of the old cathedral, which was bombed by the Luftwaffe in 1941 during the infamous Coventry Blitz. Four of our September events are going to be held in schools. A lot of our events are hosted by primary and secondary schools. And this is a great educational experience and opportunity for teachers of children and teenagers in these particular schools. Two of our September events are been hosted by museums. On Saturday the 16th of September, the National Museum of the Royal Navy, for example, will host a collection day at their site in Portsmouth. And we have our first two-day collection day event happening at the Royal Welsh Fusiliers Museum at Carnarvon Castle or Carnarvon Castle on Saturday the 23rd and Sunday the 24th of September. So this is going to be a really exciting event, a two-day event, and it's held within a regimental museum. I've covered just around half the events we're coordinating, and all I can say is that it's going to be a very busy, exciting time in September. We also host monthly training events online. We've organized online training events throughout the year for volunteers, and we encourage volunteers also to take the initiative to organize their own events within their own local communities. We have now, I believe, over 200 volunteers registered, fully trained, and they are all equipped with the skills they need, both to hold events and also to pass on the knowledge that they have to other would-be volunteers and people who want to help out at events. So really, the initiative should be with the volunteers, and we really trust our volunteers to do a fantastic job. We have total faith in our volunteers, and many of them have already done a superlative job organizing events and submitting material to our archive. We'll be adding more events to our website and you can check them out. You just go to theirfinesthour.org forward slash events and you will be able to check out what we have upcoming and we're adding stuff to that all the time. So just go to theirfinesthour, all one word, dot org forward slash events. You'll be able to see exactly what we have and the whereabouts in the country where the event is being held. We're reaching into every corner of the UK, but you know, this is very much community driven and it's very much volunteer driven as well. The initiative is really with members of the public and with ordinary people who are out there. It's up to you if you want an event in your area. If you do, please get in touch with us, maybe do the training with us and please organize it and we'll provide whatever support we can. We can help you with promotion, media, and we'll train you and show you exactly how it's done. Well, Joe, that sounds like far too good an opportunity to miss. I encourage everyone to get involved and to make sure they do. Just give us a final rundown of what it is you're exactly looking for, what sort of material you want to put into the Their Finest Hour online archive. 
anything you can fit onto a camera, basically, anything you can capture on a scanner or on a camera, anything that if you submit it online through our archive, we can take anything you've got. If you've got it in JPEG digital format, we take JPEG images typically. If you've got a PDF or Word documents containing memoirs that were written up by your father or mother or aunts or uncles or grandparents or any of your family forebears who served during the war, who wrote down their memoirs in a digital document before they passed on, memoirs that document their experiences, you can also upload these as well. We've been getting those kinds of items and I'll give you an example of some of the things we've actually been receiving. We get stories with objects and we also get objects with stories. Some of them are very simple and some of them are very long. We've received transcripts of letters. We've received a whole variety of things. One of them I'll start off with is a brief memory. It's called A Brief Memory of My Father. And our team at Oxford called this the Lucky Rupee story. And this is a story from the Burma campaign. It's very short, very sweet and very simple story. And it's like this. I have my father's lucky rupee. It saved his life in Burma during World War II. A bullet, one of many fired at him by the Japanese, pierced his shirt pocket, went through his cigarette tin and his Bible and was stopped by a rupee coin resting at the bottom. Had it not been there, it would have entered his heart. And this submission was submitted by an image of the rupee coin with a very large, significantly large bullet hole where the tip of the bullet dented into the rupee coin. But the rupee coin managed to stop the bullet from entering this man's father's heart. So it's a very striking image, the rupee coin dented in the middle of the coin. But it's a very short, very sweet story. We also have some fascinating materials, um, also from another veteran of the Burma campaign, two scrapbooks of materials collected by Wilfred Creek, another veteran of the Burma campaign. And these scrapbooks contain poems, humorous clippings from newspapers and magazines, and drawings that Wilfred himself put together that he sent back to his son, who was born in 1940. And this was sort of to document his experiences, just in case anything happened to him, so his son would have something to go by if his father lost his life in action in Burma. We also have a bowl that journeyed over several decades to make it into our archive in digital form. It went from Czechoslovakia to Cornwall via Vienna, Shanghai, Borneo, Melbourne, and Nottingham. And this bowl originally was owned by a Jewish man from Vienna who fled to England in 1938, and it's basically traveled the world. We have a poetry collection written in the dark evenings of war. This collection was put together by the contributors, grandmother and grandfather, who read the poems to their child to help them cope with the fear and loneliness and trauma of the blackouts. And we have an accession to our archive, something that people are going to absolutely love. A photograph of Teddy Brown Eyes, that's his name. And this is a teddy bear that belonged to a two-year-old who clutched it very tightly while sleeping in an air raid shelter during the Blitz in London. My favourite one, though, has to be the portrait of the mother of the writer and historian Paul Beaver. And this portrait was drawn by an enemy POW, an Italian prisoner of war who was interned in Hampshire. And these were Italian POWs. He was part of one of a number of Italian POWs who were engaged as farm labourers near Kempshot in Hampshire. And this is where the contributor's mother, Paul's mother, was evacuated to during the World War II, during the Blitz. So the story goes that when Italian laborers on the farm, these POWs working on the farm, heard that Paul's mother was about to celebrate her 21st birthday, one of the POWs, a very talented artist named Giuseppe, painted her portrait as a gift. 
Paul Beaver very generously submitted the story along with an image of his mother's portrait to our online archive. And it's absolutely beautiful. So in, in short, that's just a small selection of the kind of things we've been getting. Some of them are very simple. Some of them are very kind of basic and essential. But others, like the Lucky Rupee story, you know, the coin with the bullet hole in it, and you can see where the bullet impacted, uh, it just comes with a very short story of four sentences, and it's as brief and as simple as that. And uh, sometimes it's the simple thing that say the most to us. In our experience, looking at this material, it's actually the short, simple stories that have the most resonance. But you can submit your story in whatever way you want. You can even give the story its own unique title and we give you the honor of naming your own story as a small token of gratitude for having entrusted this to us. So if you can come to any of our collection day events, you can submit a story from the comfort of your own home. Go to theirfinesthour.org and on the homepage, you will see the button below, preserve their memories. You will see, share their stories and you are directed to our direct submissions portal and you can submit your own story from the comfort of your own home, along with any other materials you may have. That is amazing, Joe. And thank you from all the future historians that are going to be benefiting from this amazing archive you're putting together. And thank you for documenting all of our family histories as well. You're certainly going to get some of mine. I know that my mom is probably going to be logging in directly after this and uploading. So it's definitely not a goodbye from me. We'll be working together on this. And, you know, I'm happy to get involved as much as you need. But Joe, for now, thank you so much for your time and for coming on the Warfare Podcast. Thanks for listening. A reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.